But the thing about markets is that over the long term, everyone gets more prosperous. So yes, there are downturns. Yes, there are periods in which it's very tempting to think, okay, things are not so good right now. Let's get the government in to come and help us to fix our situation. The problem with doing that is that you actually store up more problems for the future. What could America's economic future look like? On this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with Dr. Samuel Gregg, prolific author, member of the Mount Pelerin Society, and distinguished fellow in political economy, and senior research faculty at AIER. We discussed his new book, The Next American Economy, Nation, State, and Markets in an Uncertain World. If you enjoy this podcast, you can subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're interested in ideas of economic freedom and fighting collectivism, check out a short video from AIR's new channel here. Share this episode with a friend and let us know in the comments what you think America's next economy will look like. So Dr. Samuel Gregg, it is fantastic to be here with you again today. We had a, a fantastic discussion last time, which I really enjoyed, and I think so did our audience. So welcome back to Liberty Curious. Thanks, Kate. It's always good to be with you and our listeners and viewers. Excellent. So today we're going to talk about your new book, The Next American Economy. Um, so let's get right into it. What is the premise of this book? What is it about? Well, I think as we all know, uh, America and of course the rest of the world faces some extremely difficult economic circumstances right now. But those immediate circumstances shouldn't disguise the fact that in America, we have had really for the past seven years, a huge debate that's been going on about the proper course of economic policy and really our economic culture in the United States today. Uh, as you know, there are many people on the left, but now lots of people on the right who are questioning the market, who want things like tariffs, who want protectionism, who want industrial policy, who basically would be described in many respects as big government conservatives. And that wasn't the case, obviously, in the 1980s, where we saw a substantial turn of many Americans, uh, mainly on the right, but even some on the left, towards markets, free trade, economic liberalization, smaller government, constitutional government. But there's no question in my mind that really since... I think really beginning in many respects with the financial crisis, but now <clears throat> since the mid-2010s, uh, we've had lots of people turning towards ideas and policies that have been tried before and failed, but nonetheless exercise, I think, a considerable temptation for many people today. Uh, I often say to people when it comes to arguing about economic policy, I spend more of my time arguing with my friends on the right these days than I do with uh, those people who traditionally have been my opponents on the left when it comes to economic policy questions. But the other big question I think which is facing us is, what's the type of message that we should be wrapping the case for markets in? And by that, I don't mean things like utility or utilitarian arguments. Those things will go some way. But I think today, when our politics is dominated by questions of identity, about who we are, who we are as a nation, who we are as a community, who's our tribe, where do we belong? 
free marketers need to repackage their argument for free markets. Because if all free marketers can offer today is more stuff produced more efficiently and effectively, in current political conditions, they will lose. Because people are looking for things like answers to the questions about who am I, where am I going, what's my community, what's my tribe. And if you don't address those questions, then I think free marketers will increasingly be not listened to. This is something that you point out in the prologue of your book, uh, where you point to Milton Friedman and Frederick Hayek and how they were thinkers that were able to spread their ideas beyond academia and really into the population. Mm -hmm. And um, you explored how that led to some of the policies of the Reagan administration and of Margaret Thatcher is those ideas becoming popular among voters and among people and forming a basis of their morality rather than just making that uh, market um, argument that's only to do with economics. Yes, that's, that's right. So if you look at uh, some of the more successful market liberalizers in, in history, they've always been very good at presenting the case in, well, let's call it extra economic terms. So one of the geniuses of Milton Friedman was that uh, he was very good at taking complicated ideas about things like prices, about the nature of inflation or monetary policy or trade policy, and putting it in language and terminology that people could understand. And he wrote many popular books and many popular articles along those sorts of lines. Now, I think free marketers need to continue to do that. But they also, in the conditions of today, need to make it very clear, at least in the United States, that patriotism, love of country, and belief in the power of free markets go together, that they're not opposed to one another. Because one of the things that, let's call them the economic nationalists, are trading off right now, is that they're saying, well, if you believe in free markets, then you must be a soulless, globalist Davos man who doesn't care about the United States, who doesn't care about ordinary Americans, and you're much more interested in some type of global liberal utopia than you are in the well-being of ordinary Americans. And that's a very powerful message that I think free marketers have not been particularly good at addressing. So that's why in this book, The Next American Economy, tries to deal with that. And the, sub, the subtitle, Nation, State and Markets in an Uncertain World, is really my way of trying to explain to people that markets are very important. Markets matter. Markets give us prosperity. The economic freedom that we get from markets helps to bolster other forms of freedom. But the case for markets has to be cognizant of cultural changes that have happened in the United States for better and for worse, as well as the political environment and how the political environment has changed considerably. So in the 1980s and even into the early 1990s, much of the political debate was about economics and economic policy. That's where a lot of the focus of the rights arguments were. But that's changed. The focus is much more now on these types of identity questions. And I think that free marketers are making a big mistake if they don't engage those questions in 
a positive way. If they just dismiss Americans who are who love their country and are concerned about their country, if they dismiss them as sort of xenophobes or people who are who are just disinterested in reality, they're making a big mistake. Now, I agree that trying to put together the case for being a patriotic American and believing in free markets is complicated. It's complicated and it can be difficult. But I don't think we have any choice right now, given just how much of the American electorate, reflecting sentiment around the world, I think, has shifted away from belief in free markets as the most optimal form of economic arrangements. Um, to your point, Sam, you're pointing out two sides of the same coin here, in a sense, where you have um, the left that was typically in the past uh, more prone to planning and the right in the 80s onwards, uh, they were really more for free markets. But then, as you said, it kind of crossed those lines sometimes. It was more a popular idea in general. Um, but now what we're seeing is that you have intervention on both sides. Both sides of the uh, political spectrum want more intervention. And I found a tweet today. If you just look up economic nationalism on Twitter, you'll find this tweet. And I think that it perfectly describes um, what the, the forward of your book is explaining. And that's this. Somebody writes, the Biden administration has adopted the MAGA agenda. <laughs> Economic nationalism, bringing manuf manufacturing back to the US and opposition to China. I don't care who does it. Let's make America great again. Yes, that tweet, I think, pretty much sums up the trajectory of economic sentiment, uh, both on the political left and on the political right, but also among large numbers of ordinary Americans. So if you look, for example, at trade policy, as we all know, the Trump administration took a decidedly protectionist stance, breaking away from the free trade consensus that had hitherto reigned on the center-left and the center-right. Remember, it was uh, Bill Clinton who signed NAFTA, right? It was a Republican administration that uh, took us into, allowed China to come into the World Trade Organization, a deal that had been negotiated by uh, the Clinton administration. So there was a free, ma free market consensus that more or less prevailed. But now we look at the situation and we see the Biden administration has, in many respects, simply continued with many of the Trump administration's economic policies, whether it's trade policy, including towards China, or the willingness to try and use regulation and industrial policy to try and deliver different outcomes in different economic sectors. So that's a consensus that I think is, is across the political spectrum right now. And it's a very powerful consensus that's very difficult to break up, given just how much Americans are thinking about things like America first, America's place in the world, uh, the, what's happened with different categories of American workers, etc. That's where Americans' priorities are. So the challenge, it seems for me, uh, to me, is that free marketers have to make it very clear that when they're proposing things like free trade, more competition, more entrepreneurship, limited government, a return to the proper principles of the Constitution, they're doing it because they love America, because this is good for America, and they need to root these things in the American tradition. Because if they don't, then they can't help but seem completely out of touch 
with how many Americans are thinking and frankly feeling at this point in time. And that's going to require a pretty big shift because I often say free marketers, we're really good at designing policy. We're really good at coming up with policy solutions. But when it comes to some of these normative questions, the left beat us every time. Economic nationalists on the right and on the left are very good at appealing to sentiment, appealing to feelings, appealing to types of the types of populist things that we've been seeing happening all across the Western world. And free marketers have had a lot of difficulty, historically speaking, in dealing with that. And so that's why I think we need to change our message. It's not a question of giving up on free markets. It's not a question of giving up on limited government. It's at least partly about how we package these things and how we politically explain these things to electorates that are increasingly skeptical about the case for markets. Now, do you think that uh, both the right and the left have turned more to um, really appealing to the emotions rather than the reason just because of all of the difficult times that Americans have been through over the past few decades that have brought them away from markets and believing that markets could work? Well, I think there's, that's part of the, the answer, right? Because uh, it's very clear that many economic nationalist ideas are by definition populist. By definition, they are populist in the sense that they offer easy solutions that appeal to large numbers of people who, ha who maybe haven't read an economic textbook or haven't gone through an AIER program in free market economics, right? So it's not surprising that that has been the case on the left and on the right to make these types of populist appeals because they get people excited and emotive and angry and wanting to do things, right? But at the same time, it's also partly a function of the nature of democracy. So, for example, every four years in the United States, we have a very big exercise in populism. It's called a presidential election, right? So when presidents get up and presidential candidates get up to explain why they should be president, it's rarely the case that they'll sit down and say, well, this is how markets work and this is prices and this is the way in which big government planning doesn't work. No, no, no. They tell stories or they, they'll point to particular examples of a town or a person whose life they present as having been damaged by free trade or some other aspect of market liberalization. So one of the big challenges for free marketers is to how do we explain these ideas to people in a way that's more accessible? I mean, it's okay for you and I to sit down and read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and say, wow, this makes lots of sense. Mm -hmm. But most people don't do that because they've got other things to do in their lives. So I think that in many cases... It's not a question of, of becoming populists ourselves. I don't think that's the response because when you go down the populist path, your attention to reason and attention to good economics quickly starts to disappear because you become much more interested in just telling people what they want to hear. But when I look back, for example, at the American founders, they had this genius of being able to explain commercial society ideas, the importance of commerce, the importance of trade, about why America was going to be a commercial republic and not an aristocracy and not a militaristic regime like the, uh, the, the late Roman Republic. They were exceptionally good 
at doing this. And I think that's a model that free marketers today in America should be thinking about emulating. That makes a lot of sense. And perhaps telling more stories as well without, you know, um, doing it in a way that's manipulative that sometimes can happen with populism. But just telling a story, that's how people learn, right? So have you, I haven't read all of your book. Have you explored that in your book? Sure. And part of it's a question of uh, looking at different situations or different, let's call them mythologies that have gained a certain traction in the popular imagination and challenging them with a narrative that tells a different story. So, for example, uh, in uh, one of the chapters of this book, one of the things I do is look at the situation of manufacturing, right? So we are told over and over again that America has been hollowed out. How many times have we heard Democrats and Republicans say that manufacturing has been hollowed out, etc.? Well, in a certain sense, that's true for some parts of the manufacturing world in the United States, but it's worth telling some stories about why that has happened. So if you look at the case of, say, Detroit, mm -hmm. which is a classic example of, let's call it Rust Belt, manufacturing collapse, etc., that has very little to do with competition from abroad or domestic. That has everything to do with complacent management, overmighty unions, and regulators and governments that didn't challenge them to change what was effectively a very sta stable but nonetheless complacent status quo. So to tell the story of a city like Detroit and say, this is what happened. It had nothing to do with markets. It had everything to do with collusion, coronism, and complacency. Another story I tell is, is on the other side of the manufacturing story, which is when we talk about this Rust Belt, we talk about manufacturing disappearing in the United States. Well, both of those things are not quite true. We know, for example, and I point to different studies that have shown this, that most manufacturing towns have actually turned around. They're actually doing fine. Now, the process of changing from the late 1970s onwards was difficult, it was hard, and I don't want to downplay how difficult that was, but nonetheless, they changed, and now they're much more prosperous than they used to be. Whereas it's those towns, those manufacturing towns, that have appealed to the government for subsidies, for help, for different forms of intervention, they are still stuck in this unsustainable, unproductive status quo. So those are two stories that I use to challenge some of the mythologies about manufacturing in America today. And also another one is to say, look, if you go into any factory today in the United States, you look around, what do you see? Well, I tell you what, you don't see men walking around dressed as if it's the 1950s, engaged in very hard, physically demanding, often back-breaking work. What you see are men and women walking around wearing lab coats, engaged in highly sophisticated uh, technological manufacturing, and doing work that's intellectually challenging, that gives them a sense that they're really achieving a great deal of things, and they're doing it in a way that's frankly much more comfortable than their forebears or their grandparents were doing in 1950s America. So there's a good story to tell about manufacturing in America, which I think would go some way to countering some of the mythologies that have been propagated by economic nationalists on the right and left in America. So what I'm also getting from those stories, um, and I'd like you to point out if this is true or false or somewhere in the middle, is that 
markets and market economies tend to have wealth over time, you know, and it takes time. And sometimes you'll have periods that are more difficult. And when people want instant results, they point to those periods and say, hey, well, this is not working out very well. We can't just let this go this way. And then interventionist policies start to come in. Um, is that is that kind of what goes on? Absolutely. What you're describing is what people used to call the business cycle, right? So there are highs and lows. We have recessions because these are correctives to misallocations of capital and resources throughout the economy. But the thing about markets is that over the long term, everyone gets more prosperous. So yes, there are downturns. Yes, there are periods in which it's very tempting to think, okay, things are not so good right now. Let's get the government in to come and help us to fix our situation. The problem with doing that is that you actually store up more problems for the future. I often like to say that one of the big differences between, let's call it, um, a market-orientated approach to the economy and a more Keynesian and a more interventionist approach to the economy is that those of us who believe in market economies are thinking about the long term, not just the next year or two years, but the next 10, 15, 20, 30, 50, 100 years. The Keynesian interventionist tends to focus on the immediate. They focus upon the short term, which means they're much more willing to contemplate using the state to try and rectify what is, to their mind, a problem that requires immediate state intervention Otherwise, some seriously bad things will start to happen. Problem is that when those interventions tend to have lots of unintended consequences, they also introduce uh, rigidities and future problems into the economy that at some point are going to have to be addressed. So the Keynesian, because they tend to take this relatively short-term perspective on economic life and economic growth and the market as a whole, that's why I think they tend to look to the government to try and fix the situation or ignite growth or whatever it happens to be through different types of intervention. Those of us who believe in markets understand or at least accept that if you're going to have a boom, there's probably going to be a down cycle to that. Now, that's not to minimize the difficulty and often the suffering that occurs as a consequence of that, but the alternative is to go for these constant short-term fixes that in the long term create more and more problems that at some point are going to come home to roost in a big way, like they did in the 1970s. After 30 years of more or less Keynesian policies across the West, we ended up with stagflation and breaking stagflation was extremely difficult, extremely painful. And if you're a free marketer, you would say, this could have all been avoided. We could have avoided all this if we'd been willing to say no to sort of more or less constant intervention from the 1940s onwards. So what happened then, you know, after seeing this prosperity that arose once um, in the 80s, certain administrations started taking on more free market approaches, not completely free market, but that was right. that was working out really well. So what happened then? Why did people to start to turn away from that after such a short time and blame uh, the market approach uh, on all of the issues that were coming up? What happened? Sure. Well, I think there's a, there's a number of reasons. So 
We had a recession in 1991-92, right? So uh, that was a time when you had people like Pat Buchanan, who uh, mounted a challenge to George H.W. Bush in the Republican Party. It probably cost George H.W. Bush his second term as president, right? But what happened was that Buchanan started arguing that economic globalization free trade, trade liberalization, domestic liberalization was responsible for much of the economic pain that people were experiencing at that particular point in time. In fact, he went on in later years to blame trade for all sorts of social phenomena, which I think had very little to do with trade or economics and had much more to do with deeper set cultural and social dysfunctionalities. So that's one reason. And then we move forward into the 2000s. And I think what really started to turn a lot of people against markets and, and really started many, many people questioning the consensus about markets was the 2008 financial crisis. Because we saw global financial markets in turmoil. We saw the unemployment rate shoot up very quickly. We saw all sorts of very bad things starting to happen. Now, I happen to believe, and I think I can convincingly argue, that most of the financial crisis of 2008 was a result of mistaken monetary policy by the Fed. They kept interest rates low for too long. Mm -hmm. I think another part of it was the effective government takeover, if you like, of the mortgage industry and the housing industry. Uh, another problem, I think, was the excessive regulations that incentivized people on Wall Street to do dumb and sometimes criminal things. But the problem is that narrative, which I think happens to be the true narrative, is not the narrative that won. So if you talk to most people today about the 2008 financial crisis, even many people who are relatively sympathetic to markets, they will say something like, well, this is clearly a failure of capitalism, clearly a failure. Remember, um, we had uh, the former chair of the Federal Reserve, right, getting up in front of Congress and saying, well, I found an error that has caused me to shaken my trust in markets. That was Alan Greenspan, yes. right, who had this reputation for being a very, very strong free marketer. And when Americans saw him on television saying, well, I think there's a problem with markets, I think there's a flaw with capitalism, we shouldn't be surprised that many people on the left, but also on the right, started to lose confidence in American capitalism. And as I said, that's because we free marketers lost the narrative battle. So the facts are really important and they matter. And I think we can point to them and say, this is actually what really happened, but it doesn't matter. We lost the narrative and therefore we've since seen growing skepticism about markets on left and right that has continued more or less unabated. Well, I think that what you've done then, Sam, in your book is that you've named two different systems that you could see as basically the options moving forward, according to your opinion. Mm -hmm. And you've named one of them state capitalism, which I think was very wise. And this seems to be the system that wouldn't really work. You know, capitalism has already been given a bad name. And the origins of the word capitalism come from Karl Marx, do they not? Yes, I mean, capitalism has a very bad reputation because only the people who first used it were decidedly critics of the, the, the market economy. And uh, it's not just them, it's not just people like Marx, it's also people like um, the novelist Charles Dickens, right, who 
wrote these novels that portrayed 19th century capitalism as this sort of terrible system that was exploiting children. And now there were bad things that happened, but it's also true that many people left rural agricultural areas and moved to cities because life was better. They had jobs, they had opportunity, they had more capital than they'd ever had in their lives and certainly much more than their parents or grandparents had. So when I say state capitalism, what I'm talking about here is you have a market, you have private property, you have free exchange, etc. But the state is deeply involved in every aspect of economic life, whether through protectionism, whether through industrial policy, whether through entitlement programs, lots of regulation, big welfare states, etc. So that's why in most European countries, for example, the state consumes almost 50% of national GDP. So that's not a market economy. That's more like a sort of state capitalism, or you might even call it social democracy. When I talk about a market economy, I mean things like private property, I mean free exchange, competition, all these things, but I also mean something else. I also mean things like rule of law. I also mean things like constitutionally limited government. And I also mean that those virtues, those classical, those commercial virtues that we often talk about that we need if we're going to live and move within the context of a market economy. Adam Smith was very eloquent on this point. If you read his theory of moral sentiments, particularly part six, he talks about the different types of virtues that are necessary if you're going to be living in the context of a commercial society. Because living in the context of a market can be tough, right? Because there's ups and downs, businesses grow, then they go bankrupt, people get a job, then the job goes away, technology comes along, it transforms the economy so that certain skills become redundant, other skills become much more highly valued. So that type of market economy, I think, is very demanding on people. And as I said, it's more than just the actual market. It's all these institutional and moral cultural conditions that markets need if they're going to operate. So that's a big ask on the part of people. But I tell you what, it's far better than the alternative, which is what I call state capitalism. And that, I think, is more or less what we have, or at least we're increasingly moving in that direction throughout so many countries in the West today. Yes, so I think that's really a wise thing to to point to state capitalism as being the thing that should have, you know, more of a negative connotation out of your two choices here, the other one being market economy. Um so so this is a perhaps a good idea to kind of rebrand uh the idea of economic freedom under a name that has been there before, but that people don't really use anymore. And rather than referring to free markets as free market capitalism, really differentiating between those two systems there. So, um, Sam, what do you think will happen? Which economy do you think will be the next American economy? Okay, if only I had a crystal ball that we could both <laughs> gaze into and come up with a, uh, uh, the, the, the answer that we want for that. So in the, at the end of the book, in the last chapter, I basically say that if we're going to have a market economy in the United States in the future, we need to present a very different message, not about the economics. The economics is true. The economics works, etc. 
But I think we need to talk about America as a commercial republic. That's the direction I would like us to move in. And a commercial republic is one in which you have a dynamic market, lots of entrepreneurship, lots of competition, lots of domestic and international trade, but everything is grounded and built around what the founders of the United States called Republican virtue. And that involves behaving in certain ways. It also involves respect for rule of law. It means abiding by the Constitution. It means taking things like uh, the Constitution deeply seriously. But it also means a strong civil society. It means having these associations and communities that Alexis de Tocqueville talked about when he visited the United States in the 1830s. And he noticed two things. He said, wow, Americans are really entrepreneurial, They're always being entrepreneurs about everything. But he also noticed that they cared about each other and they did through not through the government. They did through through the institutions of civil society. So that's the direction I would like America to go in. in. Uh, whether that happens is a different idea. I mean, I'm, I tend to be a person of hope. I tend to be optimistic. And I do think that if Americans are willing to look back on their founding documents, on the texts and debates that informed the American founding, they will find there the type of general economic orientation that makes America what it is, that makes it the case that America and capitalism in many people's minds are synonymous. America is not meant to be a European social democracy. We're not meant to be that. And I think if free marketers are willing to take the step and to make these types of arguments in the public square, then I think they're more than capable of showing that a commercial republic and a market economy should be the future and that state capitalism, which I'm afraid I think we're drifting towards, should be something that we should be consigning to the dustbin of history. Wow, very well said and very inspiring, Sam. Um, I think that this is a great place to to leave our chat. I know that you don't have much time today as you're a very popular man with lots of interviews lined up about this new book, The Next American Economy. I encourage our listeners to go out there and pick up a copy and read about these ideas, share these ideas with people, uh, inform yourself, back yourself with the proper arguments uh, so that you can engage in debate with the people around you, whether that's at the dinner table or at work or elsewhere. And I think that this is... Uh, how we can work towards changing uh, the world that we live in just little bit by little bit. Um, Sam, thank you. Would you have any last words you'd like to leave with our listeners? Well, being someone who believes in markets, I'll say this, buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> I do hope it's something that people find helpful. I do, I do think it's something, I do hope it's something that people uh, can gain some hope from because I think at the moment it's dark times for market liberalism. It's dark times for those of us who believe in market economies. So I hope to the extent that this helps free marketers and others who are interested in, in uh, the well-being of their country to, to have some hope and to see how we can bring together good arguments about the market economy with some solid philosophical and normative positions. Great, Samuel Gregg, thank you so much and hope to see you here soon again. Thanks, Kate. Always good to talk with you. Thanks. Likewise.